Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. That is Proverbs 1624. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us today for this very first episode in our series on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, adverse childhood experiences, and complex trauma with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. This series covers topics that are vital for all foster, adoptive, and kinship caregivers. And I know you will learn a ton of invaluable information. I recommend you grab a notebook as you listen to each of these episodes because Dr. Jared Brown will be bringing us a ton of excellent information. I've got my notebook ready. If you don't have one handy while you're listening, you can either pause and uh, pause this podcast, go grab a notebook um, and then press play again, or you can listen a second time through with a notebook handy then. Our regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop into your inbox on Mondays. This series with Dr. Brown are bonus episodes. If you are not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe and leave a review if you're on Apple um, Apple Podcasts. It's super simple to do so. And it makes a huge impact when you subscribe. It signals to that, you know, algorithm out there in uh, cyberspace that this show is relevant and important. And we want all adoptive foster and kinship caregivers to find this show because we believe it's a vital resource for the parenting journey. So please take a moment and subscribe. Also, uh, if you find this show to be an encouragement, let us know. Um, If you'd like to uh, leave a comment or if you have a question, maybe a question you want us to ask Dr. Brown, please reach out to me by email, sandraflackjfo at gmail.com or through the ministry website, justicefororphansny.org. Now to our special guest, Jared Brown, PhD, is a professor, trainer, researcher, and consultant with multiple years of experience teaching collegiate courses. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. I have been learning so much from him, and I cannot wait for you to hear from Dr. Jared Brown. So please welcome Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared. Hi, Jared. How you doing? So great to be on your show for the first time. Yeah, well, I am honored and excited to present this series to our listeners 
who are primarily foster and adoptive parents. I know the topics that you'll cover are vital to this unique parenting journey. I'm on this journey as well. And I get asked all the time, and sometimes I find myself asking, um, if our children's challenging behaviors are because of FASD, childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences, and I often usually think it's just a combination of all of those and probably even more things that I don't even know about. Uh, but in this series, I know we're going to attempt to tackle these topics. Um, and I know you're just you know, a wealth of wisdom when it comes to these things. So let's jump in with um, prenatal trauma. Would you define prenatal trauma for us? Yeah, I think the first kind of things that come to people's minds is like drug and alcohol use during pregnancy, mothers pregnant, using drugs and alcohol, but it goes so much further beyond those topics. So when we're thinking of like prenatal or fetal development, what about nutrition? That's a huge thing. Nutritional deficits. There's so much literature on malnutrition and poor fetal outcomes. What happens if the mother wasn't having good prenatal care? There's actually a lot of research literature, too, that looks at maternal obesity. So if the mother is pregnant and also dealing with obesity-related issues, the very nature of that can have detrimental impacts on that child's developing brain in utero. People are really surprised to hear that. What happens if mom was in a, during pregnancy involved in like a domestic violence situation? or she's living in poverty or homelessness or just dealing with high amounts of stress? Or what about chronic sleep deprivation? There is research on all of these topics. So whatever is going on with mom, bad, good, that can impact that developing child in utero. What about intergenerational transmissions of trauma too? That's a whole nother can of worms that we can dig into in this series. Maybe mom didn't have trauma happened directly to her, but maybe her mom did or her grandmother did. We need to be aware of how previous generations who've been impacted by trauma, how that can contribute to issues for the subsequent generation. So if people want to learn about that, we could do a whole talk just on intergenerational transmissions of trauma. That's a really important topic to be aware of. Epigenetics, um, telomeres. There's even intergenerational transmissions of parenting, intergenerational transmissions of self-regulation. So it's not just what's happening in the current. We also have to look back in the past. A lot of the intergenerational transmissions of trauma research look at like slavery, 9-11 survivors, Holocaust survivors, topics like that. But again, we have to take into account genetics and all kinds of things. Sandra, did you have any thoughts or questions on that before I take even a deeper dive? Oh my goodness. So many things are swirling around my mind. And, and one of them uh, being so often uh, foster care can be cyclical. Parents of kids in foster care, they had been in foster care themselves and maybe their parents had been. So uh, that, you know, in and of itself seems to be intergenerational trauma. Uh, and a lot of, you know, there's also a lot of drug and alcohol use and cigarette smoking and things like that among this same population. And, and they're all, you know, 
often battling poverty, homelessness, domestic violence, like so many of these things that you listed as prenatal trauma, which we don't even think of. Sometimes we just think of drugs and alcohol. Um, all of these things can at the same, like many of these things at the same time can come into play when it comes to the children that we're parenting. If they came into our homes through foster care or adoption, my own um, four of my children came in, uh, their siblings, they were adopted internationally. So they were in, uh, you know, very difficult circumstances in an orphanage abandoned at birth. There was prenatal alcohol exposure, probably a lot of chronic stress with mom. Um, just my goodness, so many things. So when you have a combination of these things that probably occurred in utero, I can only imagine that the trauma on the, on the developing fetus. There's a lot. And think too, think about this. If the mother is also dealing with an undiagnosed mental illness or some sort of undiagnosed physical health condition, whatever again is going on with mom impacts that developing child. Uh, I'm starting to really dig into like environmental toxins too, lead exposure, mercury exposure, there is concerning research coming out about air pollution exposure. Mothers who are pregnant who live close to a busy freeway. There's some pretty scary research literature coming out about that. So prenatal pollution exposure. So again, the list goes on. What happens if mom is dealing with some hormonal dysfunction or metabolic dysfunction? We often hear like metabolic disorder that can relate to obesity and uh, relate cholesterol issues. So again, anything that's going on with mom can impact the child. When we think of like prenatal or even perinatal risk factors, overnutrition, overeating can be a problematic factor. Undereating, so nutritional deficits, the overweight status, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think we also have to be aware if the mother was also living a sedentary lifestyle, mm -hmm. getting absolutely little to no movement during pregnancy. Now, that's where it gets tricky. Maybe there's some issues with mobility or maybe the doctor has recommended this person not move. But if we look at some of the literature on people who live a sedentary lifestyle, the very nature of not getting any movement can increase inflammation in our body. So we want to be aware of that topic of inflammation. Inflammation is a driver of most diseases and disorders. Depression really is an inflammatory-based disorder. Any infections the mother was dealing with too. Again, if maybe she was living in poverty, homelessness, didn't have access to clean drinking water, didn't have access to good transportation, good, didn't have access to health insurance, couldn't go to the doctor, things of that nature. I think we need to also take into account poor public infrastructure. I don't think people think about that too. Just again, living in areas where maybe the person didn't have access to good clean water sources or around lots of garbage and poor sanitation and pollution and even endocrine disruptors. I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but endocrine disruptors are just really these environmental toxins that can really throw our bodies into whack. And I actually gave a talk recently on the, the field of psychoneuroendocrine immunology. It's just a fascinating field of study that looks at all of these things 
but also looks at the impact that sleep has, looks at the impact of nutrition, it looks at the impact of stress and inflammation and kind of that brain, body, digestive health connection. So lots of things to take into account. Now, when we think about these things, it's also, I think, really important when we look at this through a trauma lens or an attachment lens is what was going on like within that household prior to birth. So looking at like pre-birth household challenges, the very nature of having severe financial distress, it can be very troubling and very problematic. And that can be a toxic stress exposure in some cases. Chronic long-term unemployment, that's something we need to take into account too. Just thinking about all these kind of challenges that might've been going on in that household during pregnancy. What about maybe the, the mother wasn't the victim of domestic violence directly, but she was in an environment where she saw it, heard it. Uh, maybe it's community violence where they're living in a neighborhood where exposed to a, lots of things in the community that could be very problematic. But within that household, maybe things are fine. But outside of the household, it can be very challenging. That is another factor to take into account. Drug use, alcohol use, parental incarceration. Maybe the mother's pregnant and incarcerated at the same time. There's actually a lot of literature that talks about females who are incarcerated and how that in some cases could contribute to poor birth outcomes as well. What about separation or divorce? Mother's pregnant and going through a really high conflict conflicted relationship or divorce. Maybe there's child protection involved. Maybe she has other children and there's just a whole bunch of stress and conflict and things going on again in that household. Now we throw COVID into the mix. COVID could be an amplifier of any, all of these things. COVID-related stressors are alive and well. COVID is, is not gone as much as people want it to be. It looks like numbers are going up and up and up again in many countries. So we really need to think about how COVID is almost like a collective trauma and the uncertainty, the worry, the fear, the unknown with COVID can really amplify all of this. And then we throw in grief and loss issues. Maybe someone's lost someone, someone's passed away and died. All of those things can be just detrimental. Let's just look at maternal stress. Mom's going through a lot of stress during pregnancy. That can negatively impact that child's temperament as they're born. You might see increases in irritability or hyperarousal issues, increases in crying, distractibility. There is some evidence to support the fact that chronic maternal stress during pregnancy can also contribute to that infant having poor adaptability as they get older to stressful situations. And this is just stress we're talking about. Now we start introducing alcohol, tobacco, drugs into the equation. It just amplifies this. And if a child is dealing with heightened irritability, excessive crying, you can about imagine that child's probably not sleeping well. And if the child's not sleeping well, usually the parents aren't sleeping well. And chronic sleep deprivation and daytime fatigue is an amplifier of all of these things as well. 
I'll stop for a second, Sandra. Any any thoughts on that before I maybe jump into specific like prenatal drug and alcohol use? Oh yeah, just one one thing come keeps coming to mind is a, a lot of times uh, birth moms, especially um, moms whose children do uh, eventually end up in foster care or an overseas orphanage, for example. Um, I'm thinking the stress from having an unplanned pregnancy or uh, a pregnancy where the mom knows she's not going to parent that child. So in some cases has to make a, a, an adoption plan or knows that uh, social services is going to step in and take the children or like, for example, my, my youngest two adopted internationally, mom had already had two other children who were, uh, she lost parental rights over, they were in an orphanage. So these two children, when they came along, she knew she wasn't going to parent or keep them. So she basically abandoned them in the hospital after she gave birth. So the stress, I can only imagine the stress in this mom's life with all the other chaotic stuff that must have been going on, um, the stress she was experiencing, knowing here she's carrying this baby. She knows she's not going to parent. She knows she's not going to keep the baby. What is she going to do? Um, that has to be an incredible stressor as well. That's going to have an impact on the infant. Huge. There's actually research that talks about that very thing where it's really considered an attachment-based trauma because if that mother is pregnant and it was unplanned maybe they have no interest in being pregnant they like you said maybe they know that that child is going to be taken from them at birth there might be little to no attachment that person has to that child developing in utero maybe they don't have that attachment because they're trying to protect their heart because of it's so traumatic those stress hormones that are going on in that woman's body can have detrimental impacts to that child's developing brain and their the parts of the brain that are responsible for attachment, like oxytocin production and other types of neurochemicals and neurohormones. So a lot of things going on, absolutely lots of moving parts with this. But if we were to just look at the research in general on prenatal substance use exposure in general, Increases in medical illnesses, it could be lower birth weight, the child's born with withdrawal symptoms, you might see more delays in movement, it can have a detrimental impact on memory and language and learning capabilities as that child gets older. As that child gets older, you might see increases in externalizing behavioral problems, where those are problems that parents or teachers can see pretty easily, more defiant behaviors more willfulness of like rule, rule breaking activities, kind of oppositional defiant behaviors. But you also might, as the child gets older, see more internalizing kind of distress or symptoms, which are, might be a little more difficult to detect on face value, but internalizing symptoms are like more like depression, anxiety, shame, guilt, worry, those things where the child may be able to hide them on face value, but they're dealing with so much discomfort inside. Prenatal substance use exposure can absolutely contribute to attention problems and make it look like the child has ADHD, or maybe they also have ADHD in addition to prenatal drug and alcohol exposure. Increases in impulsivity, 
These mm-hmm. problems often persist into adulthood without proper supports and intervention. And if we look at prenatal alcohol exposure, many of the things I spoke about really relate to that, but prenatal alcohol exposure, obviously executive functioning impairments. So kind of that boss of the brain is not working properly, which then can impact decision-making and problem solving. It can absolutely contribute to poor impulse control and time management issues and the list goes on and on and on. And as I mentioned before, like temperament, you might see more temperamental problems. The child might be a little more irritable, more edgy, more difficult to self-soothe. And that is one reason why it's so important that early intervention be sought after as soon as possible and really working with providers who understand these topics. And I would recommend doing it through an attachment and a trauma-informed lens, as well as probably executive functioning-informed lens, because again, there's a lot of moving parts with this. Now, what happens if the child was exposed to all of these things in utero, born into an environment now where they're also exposed to various forms of trauma at an early age? And I know in this series, we'll talk about the adverse childhood experiences research, We'll talk about complex and developmental trauma. So those would be topics you absolutely want to be aware of. What about prenatal tobacco exposure? I actually do a lot of work in that area. There's, there is a lot of research on the topic of prenatal tobacco exposure. A lot, I think, I don't know if everyone feels this way, but sometimes when you, you see like records from an adoption agency, and there was only prenatal tobacco exposure at play. I think some people think, oh, I'm relieved that it's only prenatal tobacco exposure. But we really got to take that seriously, too, because prenatal tobacco exposure has been linked to lower birth weight, more irritability in that child, poor muscle tone, decreased self-regulation, difficult temperament increased negative affect, just to name a few. So we really want to take that. I think it's important to take that seriously as well. And again, the outcomes are probably not as severe, obviously, as drugs or alcohol. But again, what happens if it's prenatal tobacco exposure, along with extensive trauma exposure or stress exposure? It's tough to know. There's so many different moving parts. Genetics has a lot to do with this. Timing of the exposure. What else was mother doing during pregnancy? Was she smoking cigarettes or using alcohol, but also having really good prenatal care? Did that kind of minimize some of these effects? Was she eating really healthy? It's tough to know, but those are things to think about. Sandra, I mentioned briefly about uh, air pollution exposure. What does the research say about prenatal air pollution exposure? This could be smoke from tobacco products, or fires, or asbestos, or carbon monoxide, or radon, even dust, mold, or pollen, all of those things. Some of this research points to the fact it could contribute to premature birth, low birth weight. Unfortunately, in some cases, it could be a factor in higher rates of infant mortality. It's been shown to negatively impact lung development and contribute to increases in respiratory problems. And it's also been shown to, in some cases, contribute to alterations in that child's immune system, to name a few. So 
prenatal air pollution exposure, something that I don't think a lot of people think about, but there's a lot of research coming out about that topic as well. Wow, that's fascinating. And I, I also just going back to the tobacco exposure, I know, you know, an adoptive or foster parent could be relieved. Oh, it just, it's just tobacco, tobacco exposure, but wouldn't, or, and doesn't often, maybe they list the, uh, that they were smoking, a, a, a birth mom smoked during pregnancy, but maybe, and I would think oftentimes if they were smoking, there was possible drinking, possible drug use. It's just not reported. So a lot of these symptoms may be because there was more going on than just the tobacco use, but the tobacco use should be a red flag to the other things. Yeah, I would say it, what, what I would also, just my own opinion and just observations I've seen, I, you can't prove it, but be on the lookout too for excessive caffeine exposure. That is something to take into account. There's actually studies on that too. Excessive sugar intake. Mom is binge eating sugar while pregnant. There's actually evidence too to support the fact that that could contribute to some poor prenatal outcomes. So usually these things are not in isolation. Again, it could be. Obviously, every case is different. But when there's one thing going on, sometimes there's others. And sometimes we'll never know. I mean, it's hard to know. And if you adopted a child at a later age, maybe it's even more difficult to track down those records. And maybe you are a parent of an adoptive adult and you're still trying to piece this together and you just don't have any birth records. It gets tricky. But what I have found helpful to stay curious, learn about these topics, maybe these things are not going on in every case, but the more we can learn about these topics, it's helped me have a better insight and awareness and compassion. And then I approach it in a way where I don't get frustrated as much if I don't see change happen as fast as I want. And that changes our disposition and the way in which we can interact, communicate, and even manage our own stress, because a lot has to do with how we're modeling this behavior to that child early on, which is basically parental self-regulation, which is a whole nother topic to consider. And all of these things can make a huge impact on that child throughout their lifespan, even though maybe they've dealt with a whole bunch of other traumas before birth or even early in childhood. There are things we can do to make this better. I'm not saying it's gonna be cured, but there are things we can do to make it a lot better. Yeah, because the, um, then we can get into some of the science of this kind of prenatal exposure uh, traumas impacts brain development, um, which then the behaviors oftentimes that parents are, and caregivers are seeing are really symptoms of, for example, uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, prenatal exposure to other substances. So Jared, you've kind of, you've listed the causes, like these are all of the things that could cause prenatal trauma. Um, and many of them are eye-opening things that we wouldn't have even thought of. So, um, and you've listed some of the consequences, some symptoms that we may see, but let's dive deeper a little bit into, and especially focusing on prenatal exposure to say alcohol, drugs, um, cigarette smoking and, you know, that domestic violence kind of stress that mom birth mom was going through 
um, because I think, I think a lot of our listeners, our children have those things in common. So what are the consequences on those kinds of prenatal stressors and exposures? Well, if we take, let's say, domestic violence, start there. A lot of these things are going to overlap with prenatal alcohol and drug exposure, but some of the literature supports the fact that women who are pregnant going through domestic violence, they may give birth to a child with lower birth weight in some cases. If the mom is dealing with an infection as a result of an injury sustained from a domestic dispute and that injury goes untreated, that is something we need to take into account. In some cases, Again, not every case is different. Some women who are involved in a domestic violence situation may be more likely, if they don't have proper supports and services put into place, turn to tobacco, turn to stress eating, turn to drugs, turn to alcohol as a coping mechanism, even though it's not a good coping mechanism. It might be their only coping mechanism they know because maybe they they feel so isolated. Maybe there's high levels of shame going on as well. What happens, this is very sad. There's a case I consulted on several years ago and the woman was pregnant. I consulted with the professionals on this. The the child was born and several years old at that point, but there was evidence to support the fact that this person's birth mother was using drugs and alcohol during pregnancy and in a domestic violence situation. And the woman got punched so hard in her stomach there was suspicion that there was a prenatal head injury as a result of getting punched in the stomach on top of prenatal drug and alcohol exposure. That's an extreme case. Obviously, that child was dealing with a host of impairments and issues. What happens if the mother had a high ACEs score herself, a high adverse childhood experiences score early on in life? and now became pregnant, and she didn't deal with this extensive trauma she she dealt with early on in life, there is evidence to support the fact that that in and of itself could contribute to poor birth outcomes and more medical-related illnesses and chronic health conditions and more sleep problems. And there's even a link between high ACEs scores and obesity in and of itself. So again, I talked about the obesity. So those are some moving parts to take into account. And again, if we look at, let's just, maybe let's pick methamphetamines. Not a lot of literature on prenatal meth exposure, but there is some. Nowhere near the amount of research compared to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. But if we looked at like, if someone was using methamphetamines during pregnancy, there is some evidence too to support the fact that that can contribute to self-regulation deficits in that child. And children exposed to methamphetamines in utero may have more executive function impairments, more social skill impairments, more motor coordination issues. They might also be dealing with lower levels of arousal. So you might see a child in some cases look very fatigued or lethargic or checked out. And a lot of these things are going to overlap with the other types of drugs, But that's kind of what prenatal meth exposure indicates. And if we look specifically at FASD, prenatal alcohol exposure, again, top of the list, executive functioning impairments, which can contribute to working memory issues, which is our brain's post-it note. 
problems with inhibition, which is our internal parking brake, relates to self-control, relates to our ability to delay gratification. It can contribute to cognitive inflexibility. So you might see a child being more rigid, more stuck on something. They might be more likely to ruminate. Most kids with FASD look like or also have ADHD. Sometimes it can look like they have oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder or reactive attachment disorder. Most kids with FASD have sleep-related issues. Abstract reasoning deficits are a core issue in this population. And some researchers say abstract reasoning might be the most advanced skill human beings have. And why do so many kids with FASD struggle with cause and effect? Not understanding what they do right now may impact them or someone else tomorrow. It's really abstract reasoning, but cause and effect, understanding consequences, seeing the gray in areas, being able to see the forest through the trees, navigating novel situations. People with FASD struggle with that. People with FASD also have higher incidence of being suggestible and gullible and naive, and they might be more likely to confabulate as well and create a false memory that's not true. Those are just a few things to think about in terms of the consequences. Wow, my head is spinning. <laughs> um, one thing popped into my mind, especially when we were talking about the domestic violence piece is I had learned um, when I, I had taken a class on uh, trauma, um, if mom's cortisol levels are elevated because of chronic stress during the pregnancy, then after the baby is born, the infant will also have higher cortisol levels. So can you speak on that? Because if that's the case, what does that look like after the baby is born? What kind of symptoms uh, would we see um, if the baby was born with higher cortisol levels? I think it's important to understand the HPA access when you talk about that, the hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal access, that's our stress response system. Stress, trauma, adversity, hardship, um, living a sedentary lifestyle, vitamin D deficiency, excessive screen time use, addiction to really anything can throw off that HPA access. Prenatal drug and alcohol exposure can throw that access off. That HPA access is really our, our, it's a hormone regulator. It's part of the endocrine system. When that becomes dysregulated, it can throw our cortisol levels out of whack. It can, it re relates to all kinds of other functions in the body. So when that child's born, what what can happen in a couple cases? The child's born, they've already dealing with some cortisol dysregulation because of in utero trauma or stress. They're born into an environment where maybe there's a lot of stress, trauma, adversity. Over time, some research points to the fact that that system almost becomes very blunted. And then eventually they have low cortisol secretion, which can is a whole host of issues that can result from that as well. And if your cortisol's off and you have higher levels of cortisol, for example, at night, you're probably not gonna sleep too well. If you have low cortisol levels in the morning, which it should be higher in the morning, you may be more tired and lethargic, just to name a few. 
that would be a topic we should absolutely do a talk on is the HPA access dysfunction and cortisol and all these hormones. It really is a factor in so many complications physically, emotionally, and behaviorally as well. Yeah, that is on our list of uh, topics that we're going to cover in this series. So that's a little bit of an introduction, I guess, to that topic. Um, We will get to that. Um, So, so many of our listeners like me are adoptive parents, foster parents. Um, We had nothing to do with the prenatal trauma that our children have suffered, but we're living with the results every day. We're living with the impacts. We're trying to help our children. So um, Jared, you've given us so much information to kind of, you know, pave the way of this. These are the things that can go wrong um, when there's prenatal trauma. So what, give us some hope here, what interventions or strategies can we implement that will help our kids have better outcomes moving forward? First and foremost, I know there's a lot of information being thrown at all of you. So I promise through this 15 or 16 part series, every, every recording, I will absolutely sprinkle in multiple interventions and tips, strategies, solutions. But first and foremost, I think becoming more empowered to learn about these topics, because once you start understanding these topics, we can again approach it in a much different manner. Usually, again, there's many moving parts. So there's a lot of people involved in this. So it's not just going to be like one professional that has all the answers. So it really is forming a multidisciplinary team of individuals. So supporting healthy child development, I think it starts with doing anything we can to support the physical development of the child, the cognitive development. So cognitive, think of the brain. So anytime you are doing anything that can support like executive functioning capabilities, and we'll talk about that a lot in this series, supporting social development, ensuring that person has a good social network is learning about social cues, nonverbal behavior. Maybe it's working with a skills specialist, a social skills coach or something. Supporting emotional health, really understanding threats to emotional health. There's a lot of different threats that can impact emotional health. Sleep being one. Obesity, irritability, rumination. We'll talk about all of that as well. When we're promoting early childhood development, anything we can do to remove harm from that child's life as much as humanly possible, creating stability within that home environment, but also within the community and at school and with neighbors and friends. So stability, very, very important. I'm not giving any nutritional advice. I do have a handful of nutrition certifications, but I'll just point out, consult with a nutritionist. Nutrition has a lot to do with brain development. Focusing on enhancing the gut. If the gut is off, the brain is off. If someone is dealing with chronic stress, they're eating not so good, they're not getting good sleep, there's a pretty good chance their digestive system is not working properly. If you can enhance digestive functioning, that actually can enhance brain functioning, social functioning, behavioral functioning. People are surprised to learn this. The overwhelming majority of our serotonin is produced in our gut. Serotonin is related to mood. 
So very important to promote that. Working with a nutritionist, maybe a nutritionist would rule out food allergies, food sensitivities. Maybe they would really take a look at any type of foods that could contribute to an inflammatory response. Responsive caregiving, obviously being attuned, being mindful, understanding attachment, understanding the topics of empathy, gratitude, optimism, joy, those kind of things. Staying in regular contact with your healthcare provider, routine checkups, but also then staying in contact with a the dentist. There's a big connection between what goes on in your mouth and heart health and digestive health. Taking good care of dental health, very, very, very important. Getting that child around stimulating and enriching environments. And I'm not talking about letting the child be on the TV or the screen all day long. Crossword puzzles, Play-Doh, gardening, being around animals, thinking, doing things, being active, teaching appropriate play behaviors, teaching appropriate exploration behaviors. Those kind of things can be very, very helpful. Maybe it's working with a play therapist a music therapist, uh, equine therapist, some, something on that lines. Also, I think, too, when we're thinking about attachment, finding someone who truly understands attachment-based approaches, attachment interventions, attachment theory, because if caregivers use an attachment-based lens, they're really going to have a desire to truly understand that child and they're going to protect the child, not to like hover over them, but to protect them from harm, obviously. They're going to nourish that child, not just nutritionally, but it's spiritually. It is academically. It's socially. Getting the child maybe involved in some sort of sporting event or whatever, get, finding a mentor, those kind of things I think can be very, very helpful. There's also something when you look at the attachment literature, I would recommend your audience understanding a topic called reflective functioning. It's also been referred to as mentalization. Sometimes mentalization is referred to as theory of mind as well. But parental reflective functioning is really that caregiver's ability to start recognizing that child as their own individual. So you're starting to teach that child how to recognize their own strengths their attributes, really focusing on promoting like internal locus of control rather than external locus of control, really boosting that child's sense of self, building self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence. And part of parental reflective functioning, parents are going to be again attuned. They're going to be sensitive. They're going to learn how to recognize that child's emotions, understand the emotions, help them learn how to manage through co-regulations, parents really learning the importance of parental self-regulation. Maybe in some cases, too, it's, it's a parent who hasn't had any training in this. Finding a coach, a consultant, joining a parenting education class. Maybe it's face-to-face. -face, maybe it's joining a support group online, listening to more podcasts like this. The, those kind of things, I think, can be very, very helpful. So those are a few things that come to mind, but I mean, I'll give many, many more throughout this series. I, Sandra, do you want me to go deeper into some more interventions or? Oh my goodness. There are, I, I mean, I've been, I've got a whole page full 
And, and, and really what I'm noticing is it isn't like any one of these is going to fix everything. It really seems like it's a collaboration of layers of many of these different things all at the same time that we need to begin to sort of build into the environment of our children for them to really have the best uh, success rate. Um, yes, I, I truly agree. And if we were to look at the prenatal drug and alcohol exposure literature, and what does that research literature say about kind of best practices for interventions? I've kind of covered these, but again, anytime you can create a supportive, safe, nurturing, and stable home environment, that's kind of the foundation. You, it's like building a house. That is the foundation. Now you put up the walls. What's What could be some of the walls? Helping parents decrease or learn how to manage their own stress. Parental self-care is so important. Getting good sleep. Parents eating healthy. Parents staying connected to other parents where they have an opportunity to process, share. Maybe it's a parent working with a therapist or counselor. There's a lot of things going on here. More opportunities, again, for stimulation. So staying active as a family. Again, having downtime, everyone needs their own downtime and space. But if everyone is glued to their gadgets all the time, people are not having dinner together. If they are, everyone's on their phone. Put the gadgets down. Get them out. Get My opinion, I'll speak with confidence with this one. Get technology out of your child's bedroom. The research is so clear on this. Get the TV out of there. Have parameters. Promote good sleep practices. All of those things. Parents who can really learn about parental self-efficacy, that's a a big topic to be aware of too. Basically, parental self-efficacy, if someone has good parental self-efficacy, they're going to believe in their beliefs as as a parent, that they have the skills to be a good parent. Parents who have low self-efficacy, are going to typically believe they're not a good parent. They don't have the skills, so they're going to probably act on that belief, and that can contribute. Finding a consistent daily routine, I think that's part of the structure and stability as well. And then maybe it's finding a good cognitive skills trainer or executive functioning coach where they can teach working memory. They can teach targeted skills to improve planning and organization and time management and self-control and working through that social lens too. We know so many of these kids deal with social skill impairments. Teaching choice-making, friendship-making, understanding stranger danger, teaching about vulnerability and victimization and good decision-making and problem-solving. Those are just a few of the things that the prenatal substance use exposure literature really stresses through an intervention lens. Wow, so many good, so many good points. And I'm so excited about this series because we have so much to break down. It's going to take us 16 episodes at least <laughs> um, to do that. So I'm I'm thrilled to be able to, to bring our listeners this series. But as we wrap up this first episode, which sort of kind of gives that overall, you know, kind of like that 20, 20,000 feet look down. Um, as we wrap up, uh, Jared, what's your best advice for right now, as we just begin to have these conversations here, best advice for our foster and adoptive parents who are listening? Stay curious. I think it's important to be kind 
calm and patient as well. And by learning about these topics, it's really, again, helped me approach situations and the work I do with clients and consult with different organizations, professionals. It's really opened my mind to a lot of possibilities for hope and intervention. Obviously, we talk a lot about tough stuff today. It's important to understand the consequences and the causes. But once we understand that, then we can individualize these approaches. We can be in a more informed position to reach out to professionals who might have expertise in these areas. And again, I think anything you can do to collaborate with other people, do it in community so you don't feel like you're alone because this can be very overwhelming at first learning about all these topics. And I assure all of you, we'll go a lot deeper into this and I will share everything I've learned over the years and I will provide as many resources as humanly possible that hopefully can empower you and give you the information, the knowledge, the encouragement to take it further and maybe find professionals in your area that that can help. Wow. Well, Dr. Jared, I'm already filling up my notebook here. (laughs) You provided (laughs) a wealth of information today, and I I can't wait to get to our next episode in this series. I believe next time we're going to be discussing adverse childhood experiences, um, such a relevant topic for foster adoptive and kinship caregivers. So thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your expertise on these topics. You're welcome. And thank you so much for allowing me on your show. Oh, it's been a pleasure. and I'm looking forward to this greatly. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us today with this special series with Dr. Jared Brown on FASD, Adverse Childhood Experiences and Trauma. Uh, We are going to learn so much together. Uh, Remember, our regular episodes drop on Mondays. Uh, And then be sure to catch those along with these bonus episodes that we're thrilled to bring you. If you have a question for me uh, and or Dr. Brown, please email me at sandraflackjfo at gmail.com so we can be sure to answer your questions either by email or if we get them in time, perhaps we can even address them right on the podcast. Uh, If you enjoyed this show, be sure to let us know by subscribing. Uh, Let your adoptive and fostering friends know about these episodes that they can listen and be encouraged and equipped also. Couple upcoming announcements here. September, right around the corner, believe it or not, is International FASD Awareness Month. And we've got lots of FASD stuff going on stuff, very professional sounding word there. Uh, JFO is now an FASD United affiliate. That means we are one of two organizations in all of New York State to contact for FASD resources, supports, and advocacy. So please reach out to us if uh, you're needing any support in the area of FASD. We offer an FASD 101 training which I lead either online or in person. Um, It's a 90 minute training about FASD for parents, for professionals. Um, And in the coming months, we will be adding our facets workshops as I become a facets 
facilitator of their neurobehavioral model. You can learn more about all of our workshops and trainings on our website, justicefororphansny.org. You can click on trainings at the top of the page and you'll see the drop down will be FASD, trauma, and other things. Um, so for specifically for the FASD, if you click there, you'll see all of our trainings and resources. Uh, JFO is also a very proud platinum sponsor for FASD United's Run FASD, a virtual 5K. You can run, walk, roll, whatever you want to do, anywhere, anytime during the month of September, between September 9th and the 25th. We are also hosting a local 5K meetup here in upstate New York, um, where if you come and join us, I will be there. My son Slava will be there. Rebecca Tulu will be there. Um, we are, you know, just some of the amazing people, right, that you can meet if you come out and join us and help us to spread awareness about FASD. You can learn more and register for the 5K at runfasd.org. Um, if you register there, you also have the opportunity to choose which kind of bling you want from t-shirts to medals to, you know, when you win and you come across the line, you get a medal, all of those things you can um, register for um, at, the at the website runfasd.org. You can check out my family's kinship and Ukrainian adoption story in my book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. I talk a lot about the trauma that my kids experienced, um, the symptoms and things that we were being challenged by as we were raising them, um, how I learned about FASD and trauma and all of that. It's all in my book. You can pick it up pretty much wherever books are sold. You can grab it on Amazon um, as a Kindle or as the paperback. If you do grab it from Amazon, I would love it if you left a review on there um, because that's super helpful to us authors. Um, if you would like a signed copy, which includes a special gift bookmark, you can order that from my personal website, sandraflack.com. There you can also learn more about me, read my blog and contact me for speaking opportunities. I also want to give a big shout out to our county sponsors. We've got some businesses um, that come alongside us. They give at a little bit of a greater level, um, kind of like our, our gold star sponsors, so to speak. Um, and we acknowledge them because, because of their investment in this nonprofit, we're able to do the things that we do in our community through the Care Portal and even being able to bring you the podcast and the trainings and things. So we want to thank Trinuclear Corporation, Bishop Bowdry Construction, National Bank of Kuksaki, and Cullman Insurance Agency. These kids, these kids, these businesses really care about children and families in crisis. These kids, right? Um, if you're a parent, you'll, and you probably are, if you're listening to this, you know, you know, these kids, um, but we're grateful for these businesses that help us to do what we do. Um, be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at justice for orphans. You can also find me on social media at Sandra Flack. I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I hope you really felt that it was worth it because Dr. Jared Brown is going to be bringing us such amazing content that we are all learning as we go. 
Get that notebook ready for next time. If you didn't have one ready this time, make sure you listen again with your notebook so you can take notes. Hopefully, they'll be much more legible than mine are. Um, But I was taking notes and recording this podcast at the same time. So now I got to go decipher my notes. But make sure you tune in again next time. And we're grateful that you joined us today. I'm thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.